You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. The scripture passage we're going to be looking at this evening is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you're using the Pew uh, Bible, that's page 1195. Uh, Paul is writing perhaps his last epistle from prison in Rome uh, to Timothy, uh, a young prodigy, I suppose. He was part or had been part of the evangelistic team. Uh, He had followed Paul on a number of uh, his missions to a variety of places. Uh, He himself, however, now has been uh, sent by Paul Uh, to Crete, uh, hundreds of miles away from Rome, and Timothy is uh, feeling the pressure of the ministry there. It's not been easy uh, for him, and Paul writes this pastoral epistle to encourage uh, his younger brother, uh, indeed his son in the faith, for it would appear that Paul had led him uh, to the Lord. So we read in 2 Timothy Uh, chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give you a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about the Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am committed 
or convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord uh, grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Now then, I'm sure that uh, those of you who are parents uh, have uh, at one time or another known uh, your children run off to hide because of some unpleasant reality that they have been faced with. And they dash into a cupboard or under a stair, or maybe beneath a bed, or uh, in my day, the, the girls run into a little Wendy house, a little plastic house. Do you know, the older ones are nodding their heads. Little Wendy house, you could have it in the garden or in your bedroom. It was a safe and a secure place uh, for children. Now, leaving uh, children in these bolt holes simply reinforces their escapist tendencies. It's possible, of course, to find ways to bring them out and help them uh, come face to face with the unpleasant realities of life. Now, Timothy's natural inclination was that of withdrawal from the demanding pressures of Christian service. He was a young man who had no real stomach for controversy or debate, nor did he cope well with criticism and the kind of isolation that that often brings you in Christian service. Both his temperament and perhaps his upbringing uh, predisposed him to what we might call Wendy House Christianity. But by withdrawing from the real world, he was preciously close to failing to be faithful. And so in this epistle, we find Paul, Timothy's spiritual father, uh, writing quite movingly. Uh, Part of the, the epistle certainly is designed to draw Timothy out of that Wendy house, Timothy is encouraged to stand uh, up to his God-given responsibilities, to endure hardship and suffering, uh, to be faithful to his calling. I suspect that many of us share Timothy's uh, natural inclination to withdraw from 
conflict and the the hardships of service. Our preference is to uh, let our light shine in some small corner of the Wendy house in which we have placed ourselves. Well, we are reluctant, are we not, at times to step out and face the gales of controversy and criticism that confront us in the world outside. How relevant then is this epistle to us? Uh, as is the pastoral psychology that we find Paul employing as he seeks to draw Timothy out of the Wendy uh, house. Uh, Paul, of course, knows that timid souls respond more readily to tender encouragement than to some kind of overbearing censure. And so, before challenging Timothy to faithfulness in verses 8 following, and before providing him with patterns for faithful service in chapter 2 verse 2 following, Paul in verses 3 to 7 weaves a fourfold cord of encouragement to pull Timothy out of his Wendy house. And in the first of these, he reminds Timothy that he is constantly prayed for, verse 3. I remember you in my prayers day and night. Now, uh, it would appear that Timothy had coped remarkably well as an associate evangelist, benefiting from the nurture of Paul's fellowship. But isolated from that, it's not just so easy to cope. And one wonders if the dawning realization of that caused the tears that are mentioned in verse 4. Often, Young Christians who leave a caring Christian fellowship in pursuit of work or study or full-time Christian service are surprised to discover their true spiritual level and really how dependent they had been upon their home fellowship and the support of mature Christians. Such folk need ongoing parental concern. And this is why Paul here is reminding Timothy, I pray for you day and night. I know your situation. It's not a case of out of sight, out of mind. I know how hard it is. And I'm praying for you. You're ever in my thoughts, Timothy. In situations of extreme difficulty, not a few Christians have testified that these words spoken by others were praying for you have lifted their spirits. And that's what Paul is doing here as he seeks to encourage Timothy to stand. Secondly, Timothy is reminded of his influential spiritual heritage in verse 5. Not only does Paul remind him of his sincere faith, he goes on to speak of that of his grandmother Lois and mother Eunice. Now, surely Paul mentions the faith of Eunice and Lois here because it was a faith which had triumphed in 
adversity. We know from Acts 16 verse 1 that Timothy's father was not a believer. And you have to try and imagine some of the tensions that may well have existed in that home. Was ridicule and discouragement and abuse poured out on them by this unbelieving father? If so, then Timothy would have watched his mother and his grandmother weather that storm and find grace to endure. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, you have witnessed faith that triumphs in adversity. And the God that you saw sustain those dear godly women is the same God who will sustain you in your adversity. We daren't underestimate the power of godly example. Richard Baxter wrote these words, There is little we touch, but we leave the print of our fingers behind. And Paul is saying that Lois and Eunice had left their fingerprints on the life of Timothy, on his very soul. Their fingerprints could be found. And he's saying, draw encouragement from that. It begs the question this evening, has some Christian, uh, perhaps a parent or a grandparent, perhaps a minister or a neighbor or a workmate, some Christian left fingerprints behind upon your life? Someone that you can thank God for in the early days of your Christian life. Here were people who made such a significant impression uh, that it shaped in great measure the direction of your own uh, Christian discipleship. Thirdly, Timothy is reminded that he possessed the gift uh, of God's Spirit for service. Verse 6 Uh, One would need to look back to 1 Timothy 4 verse 14 where we're uh, told Timothy is reminded that uh, Paul and the other elders of the church had laid hands on him, commissioning him as part of Paul's evangelistic team. And by doing so, they recognized that God had given uh, this young man the grace gift of an evangelist. But Timothy's gift was not being exercised as it might. Uh, Think about it. You can't do much evangelization if you're in a Wendy house. Now, is it not the case that when we too fail to recognize and use the gifts that God has given us, because we're fearful of the surrounding hostility, those gifts tend to atrophy. They grow dormant. And Timothy's gift needed rekindling. The the flame needed to be fanned into life. It's as though the fire was there and it's just uh, almost uh, ashes that that are white but not quite. There's just, there's a wee hint of life there. And you need to fan the fire for the flames to break forth. That's the kind of language uh, that Paul is using here. 
How was he going to rekindle the gift that God had given him? Uh, Quite simply by using it. When a doctor sees a patient whose muscles have atrophied because they've been in bed for a number of months, does he suggest an operation to cure uh, the legs? I need to be careful because there's so many doctors here this evening. Does he suggest an operation to cure the legs? No, of course not. Uh, What he prescribes is exercise. You've not been using them for months. You need to exercise them. The muscle groups need to be built up. He might even say something like this, use them or lose them. If you're a Christian, God has gifted you for service. Don't allow those gifts, whatever they might be, to fall into disuse. Fourthly, as Paul seeks to draw Timothy out of his Wendy house, he moves from specific gifting and focuses Timothy's thinking on God's enabling in verse 7. For God uh, did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. You see, when Timothy's focus was fixed on his problems, be it his poor health, or his youth, or his natural shyness, then he was opening the door for paralyzing fear. I think it's important for us to learn to trace such fears to their source, to the remnants of fallenness that remain within our lives, and to a devil who seeks to stir up blind panic in the remnants of that fallenness. So many biblical examples uh, of that, uh, of course. Now, this fear reaction doesn't belong to the new person that we are in Christ. The Christian, as we heard this morning from God's Word, is a new creation. We are transformed. That doesn't mean that God has changed our essential personalities or restructured our DNA in some way, but he has rescued us from the power and the tyranny of sin so that we are no longer captives to fear. We are not the captives to fear that we once were. We're no longer shaking in our welly boots. A friend of mine, a Muslim convert, uh, was known uh, as a fine singer And she was invited by a Middle Eastern ruler to sing at a royal wedding. And after seeing the song, uh, she said to the ruler, there are some songs here I simply can't sing. And the ruler said, why not? And she said, well, they are in praise of Muhammad. And I am now a Christian and cannot in all conscience sing these songs. And amazingly, he replied, well, just you sing what you're comfortable with. But what fearlessness she had demonstrated in the face of this 
uh, ruler. And you may well say, well, that feel, that's no natural. <laughs> if I can use a Glasgow expression, it's no natural, it's just no real. And, and you're right, it is not natural. It's supernatural. God is its origin. For, says Paul, God has not given us uh, the spirit of timidity or the spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Paul is, in effect, saying to Timothy, see what God has laid down into your life and focus upon that. Timothy, you're a transformed man. What is the power that operates in your life? define it. It's the same power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the power that is operational in your life. Indeed, the word Paul uses in verse 7 is the word dynamis, uh, from which our English word dynamite uh, comes. Uh, That's the transforming power of God in our lives. Now, there are some Christians who argue that they want to remain in the safety of their Wendy house until they have clearer evidence of God's dynamic power at work. But it's only as we move forward in the obedience of faith that we can expect to see God's empowering and evidence in our lives. You remember Peter had to step out of the boat before he experienced the power of God that preserved him in that stormy sea, albeit for a short period of time until his faith failed. Uh, But you get the picture, I'm sure. He had to step out before, in faith, before experiencing God's power at work. God also gives us his love, says Paul. And this is nothing less than the self-giving love of Christ who reaches out in compassion and care for even those who oppose us and the stand we take for him. And characteristic of this love is that it has little concern for one's personal reputation or physical safety. Leon uh, Sunans writes, forgetting oneself is not a refinement of love. It is the first condition of love. What a powerful antidote that is to Wendy House Christianity that wants to preserve itself safe from the pressures of a persecuting world. Here is self-forgetful love that says, here is a need that I want to address. It's not caught up with preserving oneself. Which leads us into the third characteristic described here as self-discipline. The grace of self-discipline helps us to say no to self-preservation, which always puts personal safety and comfort first. It was D.L. Moody, the famous 19th century uh, evangelist, who, in recognizing this danger, wrote, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other man I have ever met. It's the, the giant self 
within self-preservation that requires to be dealt with. And for our part, we need to recognize its presence in our hearts uh, and also by faith to employ the grace gift of self-discipline to deal with it. Self-discipline cultivates a passion for Christ's kingdom. Uh, And one of the things it does is it burns up the dross of self-interest in our hearts. What about my safety? What about my reputation? What about my time, my likes, and so on? Whenever we are tempted to run from the heat of battle then it is self-discipline that helps us to stand firm at Jesus' side. And so here is a fourfold cord that Paul has bound together to, to pull Timothy out of the Wendy house. And, and in a sense, if he's still standing there in the threshold, Paul goes on to uh, present to Timothy a fourfold, fourfold challenge in the remaining verses. Uh, verses 8 to 11. He challenges Timothy to suffer for Jesus' sake. Those of us who uh, tend towards Wendy House Christianity are a, a bit uncomfortable with the idea of hardship and persecution, being ashamed of Jesus or verbally disowning him uh, can be for us a very real temptation. When Samuel Rutherford, the covenanting minister, received a letter from Alexander Henderson, uh, who was bemoaning the reproach that he was experiencing for Jesus' sake, uh, Rutherford famously replied, God has called you to his side, and the wind is now in Christ's face in the land. And seeing you are with him, you cannot expect the lee side or sunny side of the bray. Uh, Suffering goes with the package. That's what he's saying. We don't think that we can separate uh, suffering from our Christian profession. These two are indissolubly united. In Romans 8 and 17, we read, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Lots of us want detours, detours around suffering. Uh, Interestingly, Luther, in response to those who were looking for such detours, wrote these words. They gave our master a crown of thorns. Why do we hope for a crown of roses? There are no detours. Paul further challenges Timothy to be a fellow sufferer in verse 9 by reminding him of the purpose of his salvation. God's call, notice is a call to holiness, a call to be altogether different. 
Now, it is important to recognize that it is this difference that draws out the hostility of the world. With good reason, Jesus could say to his disciples, if the world has hated me, it will hate you. Why did Jesus experience such bitter hostility? Quite simply because he was different. He contradicted the the, the mores of his day. He contradicted the superficial uh, religion of his day. He was different. And that difference exposed the darkness in men's hearts. It showed them up. It made them feel uncomfortable. You see, the world in which we live can only, only be happy with the church when it fails to see any difference in the church. But when the church is seen to be quite different, then the hostility of the world becomes increasingly apparent. Notice too that Timothy is encouraged to suffer because the salvation he possesses is not something that he'd won or earned, but something that God himself has graciously bestowed. And the logic is quite simple here. If God at great cost to himself has heaped all of this spiritual wealth upon us, ought we not to take our stand for him in the knowledge that it will cost us in some way at some time or another some form of persecution. I've spoken with a a few leaders in the persecuted church who've told me that they feel the sympathy shown them by the church in the West is misplaced. Indeed, Some would be happy to take Luther's words again on the lips and say, I am heartily angry with those who speak of my suffering, which if compared with that which Christ suffered for me, are not once to be mentioned in the same day. I've known Christians to say, you know, what's all this talk about the persecution and the suffering that we're experiencing? It's nothing compared to the suffering of Christ. And, and when we signed up to follow Jesus, we signed up for suffering. What, why are you surprised that we are the suffering church? The church, by definition, is the suffering church, or should be. The final incentive given to Timothy to endure suffering is found uh, in verse uh, 10 of our passage the certainty of uh, immortality is very clearly uh, mentioned here. Uh, The appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Uh, This is where we're heading. Many may harm and persecute these frail bodies of ours. But immortality and a new glorified resurrection body is what waits the believer. 
It was this profound and remarkable truth that caused John Trapp to write, he that rides to be crowned will not think much of a rainy day. Think about it. We are riding to be crowned. And if the reign of suffering and persecution happens to give us a little bit of a soaking en route, what is that in comparison of the coronation that awaits the children of God as we are crowned in glory? If you're a Christian, you're riding to be crowned, and we need to allow that perspective to impinge upon our thinking in the midst of the suffering that we may be called upon to endure. Uh, Paul's second challenge in verses 11 to 12 is to that of authentic discipleship, and it's not too unrelated to what we've already said. It was patently true that Paul's suffering was associated with his ministry and not his personality. All who share the gospel, no matter how patient or gracious or loving they are, will become the objects of persecution as the gospel gets under people's skin. You will remember that before his conversion, Paul persecuted the church, and he was fated with celebrity status. Three cheers for Paul. See how he's giving these Christians a rough time. But once he embraced the gospel and began to proclaim it and to demonstrate its transforming power in his life, he became Paul the object of ridicule and hostility. He became uh, Paul the man who had nothing more than jailbird status. Did that trouble him? No. Why? His prisoner's status in this world was a trifle compared with the status that was his in God's kingdom. God's opinion of him overruled everything else. Verse 12, that is why I'm suffering as I am, yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Paul's was an unshakable conviction grounded in the unchangeable word of God that he had an eternal inheritance that no human court could deprive him of. Therefore, he cared little about what men said about him or did to him. Like his master before him, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. And then thirdly, in verses 13 to 14, uh, Timothy is challenged to contend for the faith. 
to follow the pattern of sound teaching that he had heard from Paul. Now, the word pattern used here was used in Paul's day to describe a design or the shape of a building that was to be constructed. And I'm sure that then as now, architects were under pressure to uh, change their design ideas. And they had to be able to defend them, to ensure that they kept their original shape as someone would want to push it this way or that way or another. Of course, there are some who buckle under pressure and they make ghastly alterations just to keep people happy. Well, says Paul, Timothy, I've given you a pattern of sound doctrine. Uh, You are entrusted with the substance of the faith. You are to, to defend it. You are to ensure that it keeps its original shape. And Timothy was under the kind of pressure that many Christians are familiar with today. Why not produce a gospel that is more acceptable to your hearers? In Timothy's case, uh, if we were to turn forward into chapter 2 and verse 18, we would find that the shape of the doctrine of the resurrection was under particular pressure. Change it, Timothy. It doesn't fit with our thinking. And the defense required may call for the sort of conflict that Wendy House Christians have little appetite for. Defending the gospel takes its toll emotionally and physically and psychologically and spiritually. Just think for a moment of how washed out Elijah was after the contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Contending for the faith took its toll. Of course, guarding the biblical pattern does not provide us with license to savage our opponents. Our defense, says Paul, is to be engaged in with faith and love. Verse 13. The way that we cling to truth is vitally important. It's simply not enough, you see, to be orthodox. Some time ago I watched a Christian woman being interviewed on TV and she really did savage uh, the interviewer who had the temerity to say that he didn't believe in God. Uh, And she gave him a scathing, a rough time, a really, really rough time. And her beliefs may well have been orthodox, but her loveless manner won the gospel she was defending little sympathy. With good reason, then, we are told to engage in the defense of the gospel, verse 14, independence upon the Holy Spirit. You need the Spirit to guide you as you defend the gospel. Uh, and often to restrain you, as well as to compel you uh, to that defense. Notice, in closing, Paul's final challenge in verse 15 takes the form of a comparison. And this, I believe, is quite deliberate. 
First, we have a bad example in verse 15, that of Phygelus and Hermogenes, who deserted Paul, presumably because they didn't want to be associated with a loser, a prisoner, a sufferer. Uh, They found other teachings more appealing. Uh, 2.17 tells us as much. They, They wandered away from the truth. Do you see what Paul is indicating here? In the early stages, there is little observable difference between the withdrawal of these men from frontline evangelism and a desertion of fundamental gospel truths between Wendy House Christianity and apostasy. And that is a sobering thought. Paul then points to Onesiphorus, who is commended in verse 16 for seeking Paul out, Uh, And the word used here suggests expending great energy and effort. Nothing was going to put uh, Onesimus off. He was a a heat-seeking missile, and he wasn't going to stop until he found Paul. And understandably, it cost Onesiphorus a great deal to track Paul down. For in doing so, he was openly identifying himself with a gospel jailbird awaiting execution. But he pressed on despite that cost. He persevered. Now do you see what Paul is doing? He is planting two lingering pictures in Timothy's mind. That of faithlessness and faithfulness withdrawal that developed into apostasy and faithful enduring in the face of suffering that revealed a wholesome commitment to Christ, his people, and his cause. I wonder what kind of person you and I want to be in the light of all of this and in what direction we intend to travel. God, through his word, provides us with very real encouragement to deal with Wendy House Christianity. We're not as isolated as we sometimes think. We have prayed for. Consider, too, the spiritual heritage uh, that is yours to draw upon. The power of godly example that God has given you. Remember, too, that each of us has been, as Christians, has been gifted by God for the task to which he's called us. And he's empowered us to use those very gifts. God's word also challenges to suffer for the sake of the Savior to learn from the rich examples of suffering found in God's Word and in church history, to contend for the faith, to choose an appropriate travel trajectory. Now, 
it's easy to preach these words, isn't it? And uh, it's easy, I'm sure, for you to be sitting there and say, words are cheap, and it's all very well for him to say this kind of thing. These are rigorous demands. They truly are. But we don't travel alone. Uh, I'm sorry, there's a, there's a break in our Bibles between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 because 2 verse 1 says, in the light of all that uh, Paul has, has said to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He's saying, in effect, Jesus is your traveling companion you're not, you're not doing this alone. You're not walking alone. Samuel Rutherford never tired of telling uh, this uh, to the suffering church of his day, and I close with his words. The weightiest end of the cross of Christ, which is laid upon you, lies on a strong Savior. Isn't that wonderful? We're not traveling alone. And the, the weightiest end of the cross that we feel, it's not in our shoulders. It's in the shoulders of Christ, our traveling companion. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father under God, so often when we read your word, the response of our hearts is, who is sufficient for these things? We are conscious of our own limitations, of our own weakness. We are conscious of the uh, timidity that we find in our own hearts. And yet we are persuaded in the depths of our being that your grace is sufficient. You're the God who brings encouragement to us. The God who equips us to stand in the heat of battle. The God who has given encouragement to suffer for Jesus' sake. The God who has chosen not to abandon us, but to travel with us as through suffering we make our way to glory. Help us to look away from the dangers and difficulties that can so easily paralyze us uh, and grip us with uh, terrifying fear and instead see the remarkable resources that you have placed at our disposal. For this we earnestly pray and ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk
For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.